Chapter Four of the Adventures of a Grain of Dust by Hallam Hawksworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. April, the higher Nilus swells, the more it promises. As it ebbs, the seedsman upon the slime and ooze scatters his grain, and shortly comes the harvest. Shakespeare, Antony and Cleopatra, the bottomlands. All that wind was bound to blow up rain. I said so at the time and sure enough here it is right where we want it at the beginning of april a month famous for its rains the work of the rains is going to make one of the most interesting chapters in the long story of the dust at least i hope so but don't think i intend to tell it all why it would make a whole book in itself but you can believe every single thing i do tell no matter how it makes you open your eyes for if i've helped it rain once i've helped it rain a million times the march dust and the april rains how rain goes up before it comes down it's this way you remember how you can see your breath as we say on a cold morning well that's because the moisture in your breath is condensed by the cold now as the waters of the earth the seas lakes rivers ponds and so on are warmed by the sun the air above them is filled with moisture for the heating of the air causes it to expand and draw in moisture from the water like a sponge expansion makes it lighter also and it rises rising it turns cooler and the moisture condenses and comes down as rain mountains usually have clouds around them because moist air striking the mountainside is driven up the slope cooling as it rises so rain and snow fall often in mountain regions and that's why so many rivers rise in mountains the moist air is also condensed when it meets other and cooler air currents but right here is where the work of the dust comes in for to make rain you've got to have clouds and clouds are due to this moisture collecting around little particles of dust of which the air is full when these little motes of matter become cooler than the air that touches them the moisture in the air condenses into a film of water around them fairy worlds with fairy oceans floating in the sky each of these baby worlds is falling toward the big world below but very slowly only a few feet a day so that even if nothing happened it might be months yes years before it would come to the ground even in still air but when air is very thick with moisture the water films on these dust particles grow rapidly and thus increasing in weight they fall faster and faster and finally strike the earth as raindrops but here's another thing that helps on the way down two or more raindrops falling in with each other will go into partnership melt into one and then they hurry down so much the faster. That's why the sky grows darker and darker just before a rain, and why the lower part of a rain cloud is the darkest. The little raindrops are forming into bigger raindrops as they fall. The little artists that shape the clouds. But the shapes of clouds are supposed to be due to another thing, the mysterious force we call electricity, and that other mysterious force we call gravity. Just as the worlds attract each other by gravity, so these raindrops or dust grains growing into raindrops are drawn toward one another here's where electricity steps in these rain particles are full of electricity and when two of these electrified particles meet in the air unless they strike one another in falling in which case as i said a moment ago they blend into one they get very close together and yet keep dancing around one another without touching it is this dancing that makes all those strange and beautiful and ever-changing forms in the vast picture gallery of the sky of course the wind currents help to change these shapes but i'm talking about the original designs two 
the raindrops and the river mills so much for the dust that helps make raindrops now for the raindrops that help make dust this the raindrops do in several ways falling on big rocks or decaying pebbles for example they pound loose with their patter 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 any little bits of soil and grains of sand that may have been made by the other soil makers the sun the wind the lichens the chemists of the air and so on this soil and these sand particles if there is already any depth of earth there they carry down into the ground some of this soil with various stops and mixings with other soils on the way finally reaches the sea where it helps to make the rich limestone soils for the kentuckys of the millenniums yet to be by supplying food for sea creatures and lime for their shells for these shells become limestone when the shellfish are through with them mother nature in addition to feeding her big hungry families of today in the plant and animal world is always laying by something for the future but before it gets back to the sea by far the greatest part of the ground-up soil the rivers carry is spread out in the lowlands in those alluvial plains your geography tells about and that make a large proportion of the fertile farms of the world if the raindrops fall on comparatively barren rock in the mountains say they carry some of this fresh soil to the mountain valleys below and some of it they may spread in bottom lands a thousand miles away where the new soil helps feed the plants the sand grains in it not only help the soil to get its breath by making little air spaces but these sand grains themselves slowly decay and so make more soil but it isn't alone that they carry away the soil already made and bury the sand grains some of the raindrops soak into cracks in stones and dissolve the material that binds the rock particles together and so get them ready to give way under the fairy hammers of the next shower that comes along after nature finally gets an original waste of barren rock all nicely set with grass and flowers and trees and things the raindrops help to make soil in still another way soaking through the decaying leaves they pick up acids which are just the thing for eating into rock and crumbling it into soil to be sure the water soaking into the soil and coming out of springs carries some plant food away with it but it takes it to lands farther down the river valleys and more than makes up for what it carries away by the new soil made by its acids from the rocks as it soaks into their pores and runs among the cracks how raindrops manage to grind up the rocks moreover raindrops actually grind up rocks in order to do this a lot of raindrops have to get together to be sure and become rivers but after all it's the raindrops that do it there'd never be any rivers if it weren't for the rains and of course the snows well anyhow the rivers besides running other people's mills have mills of their own and millstones most of these stones originally came from mountains and were brought into the milling business by mountain streams with the help of jack frost for the frost not only pries stones from the mountains and so sends them tumbling down the slopes but it keeps edging them along and edging them along farther down after they have fallen you'd hardly think that would you yet it's simple enough the water in the pores of the rock expands when it freezes and that makes the whole rock expand for the time being then when the frozen water in the rock pores thaws out the rock contracts and this spreading out and pulling together small as it is causes the rock to keep hitching along down the incline oh say a fraction of an inch a year but still in the course of the ages these inches foot up and after a while this tortoise-like gait lands the stone lands tens of thousands of such stones 
in the beds of the mountain torrents that run along at the bottom of these inclines. There they get ground together and so grind out more soil material, particularly when the floods are on, with the melting of the snows in spring and the falling of the heavy and frequent rains. It used to do a lot of business, this old river mill. Its grist was ground-up rock that helped make fine farming land in the bottoms along the river's course. Such mills, called potholes, are found in the rocky floors of rapid streams, where the eddying current or the water of a waterfall wears depressions in the bed. Into these depressions stones are washed, and then by the whirl of the flowing water keep going round and round, grinding themselves away and grinding out the sides and bottom of the mill. Another curious thing is how the river mills help themselves to new millstones when they need them. If a river hasn't enough for its work, it has a way of drawing on its banks for more. Whenever the stones in its bed get scarce, so that it can make comparatively little new soil, having so few stones to grind together, it proceeds to dig its own bed deeper, since this bed is no longer protected by a rock pavement in the bottom. This, of course, deepens its channel, and so adds to the steepness of the slope of its banks. Then, owing to this increase in the incline of the slope, more rocks tumble in, and the milling business picks up again. The Governor in the River Mill But there may be too much of a good thing. The rocks may come in faster than the river mill can take care of them. Then the river bottom becomes so completely paved over that the channel stops wearing down at all, to speak of, and the river remains at the same level until the rains and the wind and other workers have worn the banks down and lessened the incline. Then, with fewer and fewer fresh stones tumbling in, the river gets a chance to catch up with its work. It is this ground-up rock stuff of the mountain river mills, made by the grinding of the running streams all the way down, that has helped form the rich bottom lands of the Mississippi Valley. For uncounted ages, the water of the Mississippi and its tributaries have been at work, and by the time you get down into southern Louisiana, you come to the delta where this rich soil has been piled up for more than 1,000 feet above the bottom of the old Mediterranean Sea that used to reach north and south across the country. You remember the lines, don't you? Little drops of water, little grains of sand, make the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. Well, this is how they do it, all this that I've been telling you. The father of waters is a good farmer, in some respects, but needs training in others. The Mississippi's floods, like those of Father Nile, enrich the bottomlands, but the river is apt to break all bounds and do a lot of damage. Moreover, every year it carries away thousands of acres of good soil and pours it into the gulf. How to teach the Mississippi to work in harness, as the Nile has been taught to do in recent years, is one of the problems that will require all of Uncle Sam's ingenuity and skill to solve. A good deal of the yearly waste could be prevented, however, by the various means employed by good farmers. How the Rivers Act as Bankers for the Farmers and the Sea We speak of river banks, and the kind of banks that handle those promissory notes our arithmetics tell us about, as if they were entirely different. And so they are, I suppose, if one just looks at the surface of the thing. But if we dig into the subject a little, we shall see that they are much alike in the fact that one of the principal businesses of both kinds of banks is to make loans at interest. Men's banks loan money, to be sure, while the river banks loan pebbles. But if it were not for these pebble loans, there would be a mighty sight less money for the banks to loan, or the farmer to borrow. 
and the way both banks do business ought to be a good lesson to certain farmers i know who seem to think they can always be cashing checks on their banks the farmlands by hauling away the crops without ever putting anything back how the rivers place pebbles on deposit the rivers make loans to the soil by depositing pebbles in the broad bottom lands along their banks and then draw interest by carrying along to other lands from time to time some of the fine rich soil these pebbles help make by their decay and the river does this in regular banking style checking out the pebbles from time to time and then depositing other pebbles in their places take the banks and bottom lands of the mississippi river for example it has been estimated that it requires about forty thousand years for a pebble to make the journey to the gulf from the mountains of a tributary stream where it was first broken off from the rock as a sharp fragment the first part of the journey in the mountains is over steep downgrades and so it is comparatively fast but as the river gets farther from the mountains the slope of its bed becomes less and less the onward movement is slower and slower and more of the pebbles stop to rest in times of flood they are carried far away from the regular channel and spread over the wide flood plain of the river then as the flood goes down they are left buried there under a coating of mud so buried they decay and enrich the soil then the next flood that comes along sweeps the pebbles with it checks them out of the bank but at the same time carries away not only some of the soil richness which these pebbles help to make but the soil material made by the decay of the vegetation these pebbles thus help to grow such as the roots and blades of wheat and corn and stubble and chaff left in the fields that's the interest on the loan then when the flood subsides the pebbles are again deposited farther along in the river's course but meanwhile the same flood has brought fresh deposits of pebbles from upstream and these are left in place of those taken away river banking in human civilization this banking business has been going on for ages and is a very important part of the history of civilization here and there along the sides of the older and larger river valleys are found the remains of ancient plains these plains are now many of them quite a distance above the level of the stream this means that they were at one time the bottom lands of the same stream but the stream as it dug deeper and deeper into its bed grew narrower and so abandoned its old flood plains as savage man gradually settled down and took to farming he found these bottom lands with their rich mellow soil just the thing for his crooked sticks and stone hoes the only kinds of ploughs and hoes there were in those days with such crude farming tools he couldn't have managed to scratch a living on any other kind of soil when the river floods came along all these crooked stick farmers had to do was to keep out of the way until the floods went down and there were their fields all fertilized for them as good as new and they could go on for thousands of years working the same fields without ever bothering their heads as to whether they needed any lime or potash or nitrogen or anything for they didn't the river floods attended to all that so in course of time civilizations such as those of egypt and india and persia grew up and in further course of time these civilizations spread into europe and finally to the new world how river banks go bankrupt now all this is very well this leaving it to nature to fertilize the fields where everything is just right for it as it is along the nile but in most lands it won't do at all the trouble is that in raising the grain foods the ground must be kept free of grass and weeds and well ploughed during the rainy season 
but the same rains that water the fields wash more or less good soil into the streams, much more than nature alone can put back. For instance, down in Italy, where if the old forests were still there, the rains wouldn't wash away more than a foot of soil in five thousand years, this soil is being carried into the Po, and by the Po emptied into the sea so fast, a foot in less than a thousand years, that if you visit Italy today, say, and then go back in ten years, you'll see bare rocks on many a hillside that is now clothed in green. On such rocks the soil is already thin, and in ten years more it is all gone, all washed away. This thing is going on all around the shores of the Mediterranean. You are constantly coming on sections of country that used to be covered with great forests and prosperous farming communities, where the soil has vanished, and many stretches of barren, rocky land where hardly a weed can find a foothold. But what are you going to do about it, you say? You can't change the slope of the hills, can you? And the farmer has got to plough his land. You just said so yourself. Yes, he's got to plough his land, to be sure. But so has he got to have pasture for his livestock. If he hasn't any livestock, that just shows what kind of a farmer he is. Every farmer ought to have livestock. Corn always brings a great deal more when it goes to market, on four feet, as the saying is. And besides, the livestock give back to the fields in the shape of manure, a large part of what they eat. Now, if you have livestock, you must have pasture, and all land with a slope of more than one foot in thirty should be used partly for pasture and partly to grow wood for the kitchen stove, and hickory nuts and walnuts for winter firesides. Although the land slopes, the mat made by the grass roots will keep it from washing away. But suppose you lived where there wasn't any land to speak of that didn't tip up. In New England, say, what would you do then? Leave the upper part of the slopes in woods. Then the water that carries off the soil will not run entirely away, as it does in ploughed fields, but will creep down slowly, and charged with the decay of the woods, help fertilize the lower lands, and change the rocks beneath them into soil, the acids from the decaying vegetable matter eating into them. But still, you say, there are farmlands that must be ploughed even if they do wash away. They're all the land a man has sometimes. What then? Plough deep. Then the soil soaks up more of the rain and lets the water pass away in clear springs. This not only saves soil, but as we have just said, helps to decompose the subsoil and the bedrock. Then there's another thing that good farmers do in such cases. They plough ditches along the hillside, leading up a gentle slope to the natural watercourses. So the water of the rains, instead of going down the hills with a rush, and going faster the farther it runs, like a boy on a toboggan, is caught and checked by these sloping ditches, and much of the soil it contains deposited before it reaches the streams. The best way, of course, is to build terraces, as they do in the thickly settled parts of Europe, but this is only profitable for the more valuable crops, and not for ordinary grains. Such spendthrifts of God's good soil. My, but it's a shame the way we've wasted soil in this country. What spendthrifts? To start with, when the country was first settled, there seemed no end to the fine land, and everyone could have a good farm for the asking. All he had to do was make his wants known to Uncle Sam, and then go out and help himself. What happened then? Why, what always happens? Easy come, easy go. These pioneer farmers worked their farms for all there was in them, 
didn't bother, many of them, even to haul the barn manure into the fields. Then, when the old farm was exhausted, they moved off to new lands, and did the same thing over again. They ploughed on steep hillsides. They allowed gulches to form, as they will quickly do on sloping ploughed land, if you don't watch out. They cut away the timber. It's easy in a hill country like the eastern part of the United States to have all the good topsoil washed away in twenty years after the forests have been destroyed, the good soil that it probably took two thousand years to make. Dr. Shaler estimated that in the states south of the Ohio and the James Rivers more than eight thousand square miles of originally fertile land had, by this shiftless and thoughtless way of doing things, been put into such a state that it wouldn't grow anything, and over fifteen hundred square miles of this actually worn down to the subsoil, and even to the bedrock, so that it may never be profitable to farm again, at least not in our time, no matter what they do. I knew a farmer with a small son, to whom he intended to leave the farm when he grew up, who did things like that for twenty years. By the time the little boy was old enough to vote, there was no farm to leave. All the good part of it was gone." Serious thing for that little boy, wasn't it? Hide and Seek in the Library What have burrowing animals to do with the drainage system of the land? Keffler's Nature Studies on the Farm How do angleworms help drain the soil? How do the forests help make good use of the rain that falls, not only for themselves, but for the rest of us? How do rains help to warm the ground in the spring? The heat they carry into the soil is produced in two ways. The book mentioned above tells one of these ways, and Russell's little book, The Story of the Soil, tells of another. Beale's Seed Dispersal tells how the raindrops, working together, of course, help plant maple, elm, sycamore, willow, and other trees that grow by the waterside to scatter their seeds. You'd be surprised what a series of adventures the seeds of a bladderwort have before they get planted on some new shore, after having left the parent shrub. First they float downstream, as you know, but when autumn comes on, what do you suppose they do? They go to bed. Where? Right in the bottom of the stream. Then how do they ever get up and get planted on the shore? Well, you just look it up in that Beale book and see. Do you know how the rains help to get the mineral food up into the plant? And why swamps are such poor producers? and how the sun acts as a pump for the plant world? You'll find answers to all these questions in Shaler's Outlines of Earth's History, and in your books on botany and agriculture. Russell's book on the soil tells how the ancient Gauls and Britons used to fertilize their land with marl, and how the tides helped to fertilize England. It's just the reverse of the way Father Nile looks after Egypt, as you will see. If you want to read an interesting description of the difficulties of farming on wet lands, you will find it in this meaty little book. If you don't know how serious a thing it is to let gullies form in land, look it up in Shaler's Man and the Earth, and you will see. How do you suppose deserts that get so little rain themselves could help make it rain in other places? For example, the desert of Tibet is the chief cause of the monsoon rains that do so much for India. That part of your geography that explains the circulation of the air will help you figure this out, particularly with a map under your eye that shows the relative location of the desert and the Indian Ocean, over which the monsoon winds blow. End of chapter 4